Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and we have an exciting episode for you this week. But before we start, we need to spend a few minutes in Dr. Art Carden's economic imagination. Hi, I'm economist Art Carden from Sanford University's Brock School of Business and Forbes.com. You might have heard the expression invisible hand, and you might wonder, how exactly does the invisible hand work? Well, the invisible hand brings us all sorts of things, like almonds. And to find out more, stay tuned. Our guest today is Brent Waters. Brent Waters is the Stead Professor of Christian Social Ethics at Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary and the director for the Stead Center for Ethics and Values. He is the author of many books, including the book Just Capitalism, A Christian Ethic of Economic Globalization, which is the topic of today's conversation. Brent, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. So when I read the title of your book, Just Capitalism, I could have said that in a number of inflections, uh, which has some ambiguity in how you're talking about capitalism. And you even talk about that in the preface of the book. Are we talking about just capitalism? Are we talking about just capitalism? How, how would I how would you say it? And what is the ambiguity all about? Right. Well, Readers can read it either way. It's, it could be a book and saying, look, it's just capitalism. Um, learn how to navigate it, get used to it. Or you could say just capitalism, that we can think of capitalism in ways that make it just. I tried to write in that second uh, terms, but I don't care if readers want to read it in the first When I saw the title of the book uh, on Amazon, I actually had it a, a second the, the second meaning in mind, thinking, oh, well, you're going to talk about, you know, ethics and morality and, and how it relates to capitalism. And that's indeed the case. And I think to kind of summarize the book uh, in terms of like why it's an important book to read is that globalization is happening. It's been happening for a number of decades, if not a century. And it makes a lot of Christian theologians and moralists kind of nervous about the economic effects, uh, whether whether warranted or not. Things like you know inequality is, is apparently a rising concern, displacement of labor, uh, and capitalism's reputation is kind of waning in the last few decades, especially. Uh, even, you know, and, and that's in, in spite of the extensive misunderstandings about what it, what it is and, and things like that. Uh, one thing that you kind of start off with is that globalization gets two and a half cheers, but why not three? Why only two and a half? I think in the first place, there's this part of a Christian skepticism in my mind that I'm never going to give anything worldly three cheers. Only God gets three cheers. So there's that caution. But more importantly, I think the reason I can only give globalization two and a half is that um, there are some problems that still need to be addressed in globalization. Um, Not enough of the world's poor or have access to markets. They really can't participate in the very means of uh, employment, investment, and, and uh, other kinds of uh, opportunities that would allow them to escape poverty. So I think until um, those uh, questions are addressed, those issues are resolved, the best I could give it is two and a half. And I think two and a half is very, very high, uh, much more than I would give most uh, uh, social and political uh, policy and programs in, in the world right now. So it's. Um, I know that globalization has kind of a tarnished reputation right now, but I think if you really want to help the poor, it's still the only realistic game in town. 
It seems to me that there's a lot of misunderstanding about how much the that globalization and capital capitalism or markets, however you want to talk about this, uh, has benefited the poor in the past hundred years. And you kind of, well, you know, you don't kind of, you really, you know, bring that out, and especially the first half of your book that that we kind of we need this uh, if we care at all about poverty. We're gonna get into that. Uh, kind of got ahead of myself, but. Why is it that people disdain economic globalization? There's a lot of Christian moralism going on about what the rich are like, and there's kind of a history of of what that's all about. Uh, or there's kind of a history of what Christians have said about the wealthy. And uh, why don't you go in a little bit? Because I found I found your treatment of that pretty fascinating. Well, I think uh, you know, for for about the first eighteen centuries of Christianity, uh, wealth and riches uh, was held at best in high skepticism and very often just condemned outright. And there was a good reason for it was because economics then was primarily zero sum because they were agrarian based. There was only a limited amount of food you could extract, minerals that you could extract, timber, things like that. So that literally, uh, quite often, you became wealthy at the expense of the poor. And that's why in, why alms was always an obligation, because in some sense you were paying back the debt of money that you had taken from other people. So you can see that why why that would be the case, and, and why why the teaching was very skeptical of wealth and riches. But for the, at least the last two centuries, at least beginning with industrialization, that's no longer how economies work. They're no longer zero sum, but based on productivity. So that wealth is, in theory, at least unlimited. And therefore, um, it's, it's really a matter of people having opportunity to, to build their wealth. I don't think Christian moral theology has, has kept up with these changes. And then I think the second factor is that for a good part of Christian moral theology in the 20th century, at least, it was deeply influenced by Marxism. Yeah, that's kind of been my assessment. And uh, with, you know, it's interesting. I've I've been studying markets for over a decade and a half now, and I've never heard somebody who is not really a libertarian. And, and given some of the contents of your book, I'm not sure you'd describe yourself as somebody like that. But I've never heard somebody who's not a libertarian uh, admit or say or or outright say here markets in nowadays are not zero sum the way they used to be. Yeah, and that's why I think the key thing is, is uh, in markets is to give opportunities to compete and to participate. I think that's what's key about uh, to, to help people escape poverty. But what really prompted me to write this book was I wanted to take seriously the Catholic social teaching on the preferential option of the, for the poor. But what I wanted to do was saying, realistically, what would that mean? Well, I think it, the more I read, the more I realized that uh, socialist and, and, and uh, Communist attempts really didn't help the poor. In fact, it made their situation far worse. But if you really wanted to look at how did we get a billion people out of poverty in two decades at, at the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, it was almost entirely the market, uh, liberal market reforms, which encouraged free trade. So I thought there must be something in here. And the more I read into it, I uh, read a lot of the economists from the Vienna School and, 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 and other things, I realized that for most things in life, Markets work very well if you want to address the material well-being of people and if they have the opportunity to compete in the market. One of the things that you brought out in the chapter about Christian moral theology is that there's a tension. You know, you said the past 18 centuries that it's been pretty much about the wealthy having things and other people don't. And it's, it's kind of zero sum. Uh, and Christian social teaching has uh, changed over time, but there have been some voices that don't that also acknowledge the good of material material wealth and material well-being. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there are. I mean, to take Christianity seriously, it means you have to take the incarnation seriously, and the incarnation is an affirmation of embodiment. I mean, the Word becomes flesh, and therefore, if we really are to love and serve our neighbors, we can't ignore their material and and physical well being, which is one reason why we have health care. And but I think it's also another reason why why providing them opportunities to work. To, uh, to gain a, a wherewithal uh, is not divorced from the gospel. It's not a secondary concern. It really is at the heart of the gospel. What do you What do you say to people who kind of engage in economics or politics as a sort of side game of well, we have to pay attention to this because this is the world we live in. But Jesus was really, you know, all about our eternal well being. Um, I I would I would report back. Yes, uh, I think. Um, uh, eternal well-being is, is certainly at the core of the gospel, but also at the core of the gospel is the love of the neighbor. And we engage a whole variety of neighbors, some of them we know well, some of them we, we don't know well, some we've never met. And one of the ways that we express that love of, of neighbor is how we participate in, in economies, how we participate in politics, and uh, is why I think we need a vocabulary for saying uh, something to the effect of how do we work together to achieve certain kinds of shared goods and uh, and how do we disagree in those matters? So that I, I wouldn't say that, I mean, I think there should also be a, a healthy distance from politics. I don't think politics should invade all of our lives. But at the same token, not to dismiss it as an unimportant uh, feature of life. I think it's terribly important. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had we had John Schneider on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, um, and he wrote a book called The Good of Affluence. And that's actually the title of one of your chapters. And it's it was intriguing to me that you that you had even quoted him because that was the first thing I did when I was looking through the table of contents. I'm like, oh, I wonder if he quoted John, John Schneider. And of course you did. Uh, What what is affluence not? I mean, affluence has gotten a bad sort of a bad rap. I mean, we've got we're 2019 right now and there's a lot of talk about billionaires being immoral. I mean, I've literally read articles saying it is immoral to have so much money and that in and of itself is not the question here, but like people think of affluent as like that kind of direction, like just people having wealth. And that's not quite what it is. No, I, I, I understand affluence as being simply that you have some disposable assets beyond just expending for necessities. So that uh, beyond food, shelter, medical care, uh, clothing, you have some disposable uh, uh, income or, or assets that you can use for other sorts of things. And I think that this, this simply enriches one's potential to do other kinds of things in life. So that uh, affluence is, is, is not, not, I think it has received a bad rap and, and, and unjustly. I mean, on the other hand, I don't want to uh, uh, valorize uh, poverty either. I think unless, unless poverty is voluntary, I think it can be crushing. And I think that we have tended to, to, to think that somehow um, um, it's not our job as Christians to really uh, address the question of poverty other than simply redistribution of assets. Now, the problem with redistribution is I think you can do it once and after that you have nothing left to redistribute. Could you could you elaborate on that a little bit? When you say there's a problem that you, you can do, do it once, I, I think most people who are for redistribution aren't for a one-time redistribution. Well, I mean, if, if, all right, if, say that you have a, a tax rate of 70 to 90% somewhere around there, um, all right, and you take away my assets the first time I go around to do that, I don't think there's any stimulus in me to continue as a business person to generate jobs, to generate anything else. There's really nothing left to redistribute from me because I've simply given up on making the effort. 
So I think you, it, it, it's it's counterintuitive. I think actually, for example, in something like taxes, lower tax rates actually generate um, more taxes to, to be used for different kinds of social policies and, and social programs if you want to go that mm-hmm. route. But in but in general, I think it's uh, you know you have to allow people to keep the fruits of their labor, or they're not going to go after the fruits in the first place. Yeah, well, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, if, if people don't have the ability to keep the fruits of their labor, there is there is zero or little incentive to keep doing that. In fact, that's that's part of <laughs> that's part of what makes capitalism uh, appealing to people who don't already have it. Uh, and you kind of alluded right. to earlier that we need to bring mar- more markets to the to the poor because that'll help them. Yes, and and I think you know that part of the other thing that that, that this book grew out of was having spent nearly four decades in academia, was to he- keep hearing I think increasingly unrealistic proposals of how to uh, how to solve the problem of poverty, and it was always those evil business people, uh, the the evil capitalists, and you would hear the the complaints against them ad nauseum for it was just generally assumed that someone had means that someone had wealth they must have gotten that through ill-gotten right. gain and and then without any sense of irony they would complain about how their retirement funds were doing <laughs> which were entirely invested in markets and 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 i i think the other thing that 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 prompted me to write this book is I'm, i married into a business family and uh, my father-in-law dispelled all of the uh, misperceptions I had of what it was like to be in business. I mean, uh, he, he cared about the people who worked for him. He cared about his customers, cared about his community, and really saw um, his work as, as a business uh, businessman to be a, a contribution, a, a really an expression of his Christian faith to, to a large extent, although he didn't wear his faith on his sleeve. Um, also, teaching in a seminary, I, you know, I, I keep wanting to tell the students I teach that saying, look, you, you can't for 51 weeks of the year berate the business people in your congregations. And then on, on that one Sunday called Stewardship Sunday, then you can't figure out why they won't commit much in tithing. I mean, there's a calling and vocation that Christians have in the business world that needs to be affirmed. And so this was another reason why I wanted to write the book. Well, I really appreciate that admonition about about pastors and doing that. I mean, I can totally understand that. The other thing is that I've actually thought and I haven't really proposed this in my congregation, but I figured, you know, it'd be nice if we had some sort of like vocational ministry Sunday where we, you know, we ha- we have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, we have uh, Love Your Pastor Week. We have, I mean, there's probably a bunch of made up ones, not made up as in like fake, but like made up for good reason. And I'm like, we should have an entrepreneur week or, uh, you know, here's your Christian vocation, uh, because I know a lot of people, most of many of them elders in our church are are very much businessmen described like your father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or we don't celebrate we don't celebrate that enough was my point. No, we don't. And and I say look at the very least at least visit your people where they work because that's where they spend a lot of time. Well, and I think there's a growing discontent or maybe it's not even growing, maybe it's just been there a lot is that the people who are in full-time ministry for for all the good that they do, they don't always have a handle on what the I don't want to call it the real world, what the business world, what the marketplace is, is like, because I mean, they're dedicating their time in a number of other ways. Uh, it's not necessarily their fault, uh, but it's just the way that we have things set up. But you know, the more, you know, I do know pastors who do work in the marketplace and are pastors and they, they, uh, they, I think have a better handle on what's going on. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, um, again, what I've, 
what I tell my students when we get in the section in the course on, on economics and globalization is, is I tell them, I think my father-in-law did more good for more people in a week than I will do in a lifetime. And I know they look at me as if, I, if they, as if they don't believe me, but I think that's absolutely true because then I go on to tell them, look, unlike my father-in-law, I never hired an employee. Uh, unlike my father-in-law, I've never sold a product that people really want or need. And, you know, that's a world that's very foreign to me, and I need to admit that and to say, look, the pressures that, that the business people face are not the pressures that I face as an academic. And, you know, to use, it's not a, a theological term, but I want to cut them a lot of slack. I want to know their world before I try to condemn it. Yeah, well, I, I think that's very, uh, yeah, I agree. I, I don't have any other response other than that's, that's really good. You also talk a little bit about how the Holy Spirit has been playing. This is kind of shifting topics a bit, but what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the ongoing changes in economic history? Um, is is the Holy Spirit an invisible hand? Is there something bigger going on there? And I, obviously that relates to how the church has interacted with, with, uh, with the economy. Yeah, I, I know the chapter you're referring to. That, that chapter probably cost me most of, my, most of the ones that I lost any friends on <laughs> because I— I, th- I think it was misread. I think they thought I was arguing that, because it goes back to Schumpeter's argument of creative destruction. And I think there's no reason to mince it. Look, when markets are working well, they're destructive, but they're also creative. And I was not arguing that destruction is the work of the Holy Spirit. What I was arguing was that in the creative destruction of markets, there are opportunities for the Spirit to be at work that were not there previously. And I think that that's what the church needs to be attentive to, is saying, look, in, in, as markets become disrupted, as people's lives are changed, as they have to learn different skills, they may have to migrate, there's all sorts of things. These are not necessarily tragedies, but opportunities for the spirit to be at work in ways that we did not anticipate in the past. So I think that that's what we really got to look at. I don't think it's, a, it's being Pollyannish, but it's just saying, is God perhaps calling us through the, through the spirit uh, for example, to be, uh, you know, looking at the world in ways that we did not look at it before, so that maybe we see the, um, you know, the emergence of the market state in some ways as an improvement over the decline of the uh, nation state, because nation states have, have gotten us in some trouble. And, you know, market states are not going to be problem free, but market states are also going to have some benefits that were not there previously. So that's, that's what I'm simply trying to argue is that you can't anticipate the work of the Spirit in advance. You can't domesticate the mm-hmm. Spirit. So you might as well be, be attuned to what, what are the new possibilities here. Would a, would a simple example be things like what you said earlier where, you know, wealth used to be uh, zero sum and now it isn't. And we as the church have to address the ongoing needs of those around us by by addressing the, the new way in which wealth is created rather than assuming the old way has is, is always been the norm. Right. Or, or another example I would use is like, you know, there, there's a lot of concern right now about the emerging gig economy. And I know the gig economy has its problems, but it also has opportunities for some people that they wouldn't have even had the opportunity to work if it weren't for something like Uber or Lyft or other opportunities. So that we shouldn't simply just condemn the gig uh, economy as, as, as a way of impoverishing workers, but saying, no, you know, with the new economy, these these emerged as 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 ways that that were not there previously, and that um, you know we need to be to be open to the prospect that maybe in the future, um, even people like me, academicians, won't live by tenure anymore, but we'll be living to, much like the gig gig economy now. 
Hi, it's me again, Art Carden. Earlier, I asked if you'd ever heard of the invisible hand. And Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, is famous for introducing the metaphor of the invisible hand in writing that the invisible hand leads us toward an outcome which is no part of our intention. Indeed, one of the major implications of Smith's body of ideas and of economic reasoning very generally is that unintended consequences can often be very, very positive. In this case, people pursuing their own interest making the world a better place however they choose to define it. In other words, the invisible hand directs them toward an outcome which is no part of their intention. It directs them to serve the common good by serving their own interest. Now, their own interest need not be selfish. It's just that they have their own families, they have their own communities, they have their own jobs, they have their own lives. They may not like us if they met us. We may not like them if we met them. And yet, the invisible hand is directing them to use knowledge they have for other people's purposes. In addition, the invisible hand is directing me to use knowledge other people don't have for their purposes. At this point in the game, the invisible hand is directing me toward the production of economics lectures, scholarship, articles, and spots on podcasts like this one. For additional practice with the economic imagination, be sure to check out libertarianchristians.com slash artgarden. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, well, on that note, you know, in terms of the uncertainty of the gig economy, we actually did a, uh, I just point our listeners to the episode we did with Mike Munger on Tomorrow 3.0, uh, where we talk about that sort of uncertainty of economic revolutions, and he, he believes we're in one today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the first half of your book, is a lot you you spend a lot of time talking about how great markets are uh, in terms of how globalization has helped the poor, how it has given us uh, more than just bread alone. Uh, you know, early in the book is first thing I highlighted in your book is we do not live by bread alone, uh, but we cannot really know this until we have more than just bread to eat. <laughs> uh, I just thought that was wonderful because that is a very people think that there are poor people because there are rich people and that we still have poverty because the rich are too greedy and all of this. And sure, I'm sure there are rich, greedy people out there, but that's not why that we, we haven't. And so the first half of your book is like, Hey, this is material. Well-being is good. Uh, this has helped us. It's helped us in a number of ways. One of which is we've helped eradicate poverty. And then there's the second half of your book, which is sort of titled, but not sufficient. And that you endorse globalization in, in a, provisionally, uh, but it's not sufficient. Uh, What is it that you mean that's not sufficient about globalization? I mean, in in one sense, I think even the most anarcho-capitalists would say, well, of course, markets aren't the only thing out there. It's not the only thing that gives us meaning. Uh, But what do you mean by it's not sufficient? Yeah, what I'm I'm really trying to capture there is, okay, what does it mean to live the abundant life, as mentioned Mm -hmm, in Scripture? mm -hmm. and I think that what I want to make the argument is saying, okay, you, you need to tend to the material well-being, the physical well-being. But when, and once you begin to attend to that, there's something more. And it has, it's not unrelated to exchange, but it's not exchange per se. And, and in other words, just ask the question, where do we as human beings flourish? And I want to say is that exchange makes flourishing possible, but exchange in and of itself is not flourishing. So what do I mean? I think it's, it's related to what I call koinonia which can be translated as, as communion, community, uh, to communicate. So how, how I would draw the distinction to how they're related is that in an exchange, what is yours becomes mine and what is mine becomes yours. But in communicating the goods of creation, what is yours and mine becomes ours. And I think it's in those kinds of, of uh, um, associations or communities where human flourishing really takes place. Now, I think you need the underlying support of market mechanisms and, and, and exchange to make that possible to attend to the physical and material well-being. 
but it's really in these other communities where we communicate goods rather than exchange goods that, that we find are flourishing. And I'm talking about things like churches, families, um, uh, more voluntary associations that where even exchanging goods would be inappropriate to, to the life of the community. For example, when I go to church, I don't buy the Eucharist. So that, that's what I'm talking about. Now, I think that they're related. And my hunch is that in those societies that do not adequately address exchange, probably have fewer associations where human flourishing takes place, or it's much more difficult. What role do you think the church plays in the cultural development of a society that is going to be more I don't think the word is koinonia-ic because that doesn't make sense. Uh, more toward like we're going from it being just about exchange to being sharers, communicators of the goods of creation. I mean, does is the church just, hey, here's an example. Are we to, you know, engage in politics in a way that makes others do that kind of like think about think about that kind of thing uh, or, or make them sort of behave that way with their with their tax dollars? Where do you see the church kind of playing a, a role? Well, I think, yeah, I think the church is at its best when it tries to form desire and how to order that desire uh, appropriately. So it's really just something to the effect of, um, um, look, most of the time when we, when we get into mischief, it's not because we're evil and wicked people. We just desire good things badly. Our, our desires are out of whack. So that if, for example, you desire or you love your work more than you love God or family, then your your life is going to be, you know, in C.S. Lewis's term, bent. It's going to be out of alignment. And I think the church then, if it takes this job seriously, can begin to, to say, you know, give this a try. It is a form of witness in terms of the way that, that Christians live their lives in, in, in these communities. Um, but I'm not sure the church is really doing a very good job at that formation. It's doesn't tend to really challenge how people are formed by the culture. Um, more than anything, it, it usually doesn't really hold. I mean, look, I've been in the church mo- all my life, and I've really never been held to account for the choices that I make. So I think the church needs to really help people think through what is most important and how do you go about ordering your desires in, in line with that. Um, so it is. I think the church now has an opportunity to really be a witness in the culture, but it's a witness of really saying, Come and, and, and try this, you know, come and try to experience this. So it is a form also of evangelism. You know, inevitably, when we talk about the role of Christians in society, especially in more democratic Republican societies like the United States, you know, Western democracy, broadly speaking, we get into the dicey situation of what, who gets to say what, and who gets to tell other people what to do, who gets, you know, is it, is, you know, we even talked about the, we can talk about the ethics of voting another day, but, you know, within, with respect to getting involved with the government, one of the fundamental insights that libertarianism, I believe has, is that the state uh, is based on coercion. And it's actually something you talk about in your book. And to be honest, I'm a little puzzled because some of the stuff in the second half of your book doesn't seem to take that into account as much as I would want you to. Now, again, this is I'm, I'm hoping to converse here about this. I don't want to debate. But uh, what what is it when I've never heard somebody propose things uh, near the end of your book like you do that also says, hey, we still have to remember that the state is based on coercion. Yeah, I think the state is based on coercion, and um, that's why, quite frankly, I don't want the state involved in my life more than it absolutely needs to be, because uh, uh, I mean, a life based upon coercion, I don't think is a good life. I mean, a, a life totally based upon upon coercion. That's 
why authoritarian, totalitarian regimes are bad regimes. But you do need, I think, some coercion there to enforce laws to protect the public and things like that, but but it should be a minimal. Now, um, you know, what does that mean? I think what it means is basically that um, um, in kind of the proposals that I, that I want to make is I don't really see the state playing a huge role other than kind of regulatory and, and, and the regulations are what I would call smart regulations, not being overly obtrusive. And I think one of the things I looked at was, was education. So if ed- education is vital for getting people to, to get to participate in markets, and I think that's where most people do, or at least should learn the skills to participate in the markets, how do you get them there? Well, I think education is a shared opportunity cost uh, by society because it has intergenerational aspects to it. So the question becomes, you're probably not gonna be able to get out but paying taxes to fund education, but what is it that you wanna fund? Well, I prefer to fund students and families rather than schools. So I think the voucher system is actually a pretty good system and let people who are, are, are closest to the situation make the decisions as to what kinds of schools they want their children to be part of. You know, Sweden, the whole educational system is funded by vouchers, uh, which is not the, you know, I think the Sweden of uh, Bernie Sanders doesn't exist. Um, it has made a lot of market reforms and one of them has been in education. And this is where I think actually markets help education be better because they're competing for voucher dollars. What are some other ways you think the the the, the regulatory state, if you will, I don't want to call it the regulatory state, but regulatory uh, items that the state can do that you find that you also find helpful? Oh, for example, uh, one thing I would think through is, is I, as long as, again, they're not overly in, in, intrusive, I think, um, you know, inspecting meat plants for, uh, you know, safety of the workers and safety of the products being made is a good thing. Um, what I don't want is government telling me whether or not I can eat meat or whether or not I should eat meat. I just don't think that the government is in the business of telling me what my diet should be. It just simply is, is, is helping me to, to uh, have some assurance that I'm, I'm buying safe products and that workers are not being endangered while they're providing it. I actually saw uh, an article today, uh, a couple hours ago, that there was a politician telling mediators that their days are numbered. Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I just think, you know, why do I... why did, why do I need politicians telling me that my my days as a mediator are numbered? Is that really what we want our, our government leaders to do? Well, it's for the environment. That's well, what they that's what I'm they would say. I mean, that that's sort of a response out of the 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 Green New Deal. I always get those words back. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced getting rid of flatulent cows are really going to serve us all that well. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure either. One of the analogies you use for the state early in the book is the state as an umpire. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? I actually like that analogy more than any, and I've used it myself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the government's there to, to, to say things, you know, like, um, you know, th- this is lawful for this for these following reasons and not lawful and then not changing it in the middle of the game. It's to ensure that the the justice that one receives in Illinois is not different than the justice that one receives in Indiana. Um, it's it's to really, uh, in a sense, allowing people to compete fairly so they know what the rules are and they know that if the rules are violated, there will be certain repercussions from that. So it's it's really um, when when I use the state as umpire, it's again that the state's not there to pick winners and losers. It's to ensure that the competition is conducted fairly. How confident are you that the umpires don't sort of change the rules to benefit the team their nephews play for? I mean, we've <laughs> we've seen this happen and we're always playing the game, if you will. So 
I, I worry, and this is just my critique a bit here, is that because we're always playing the game, uh, there's always going to be changing rules, and I think I would rather... I don't think I want the umpires doing that because, uh, I don't know, it just doesn't doesn't sit well with me because I may not have had any choice in which umpires are, are making those calls. Right. Well, I mean, look, the older I get, the less skeptical I get that we, or the more skeptical I become that we need better umpires because I think rules are often changed in the middle of the game um, and it's not helping anybody. Okay, how, how can we get back, how we can get better umpires? Um, I'd like us to see us really take seriously what does it mean to, to recover a sense of civic virtue of uh, what what is it that, that when you go into public service, what does it mean to serve the public? And that's something that I think that we've not given adequate attention. Now, I realize that's a huge task because mm-hmm. that also have to have some kind of common beliefs, some kind of common um, values as to what constitutes good, what constitutes what is even true and beautiful. And increasingly as a culture, we don't agree on much of anything. So I think it may be increasingly difficult to have those kinds of civically minded umpires. Yeah, well, I, I think pol- political outcomes or politics generally is downstream culture, and the culture shift would have to change for for those uh, for those to happen. Yeah, I do, and and I think you know I I, I try not to grow pessimistic, but um, you know we, we keep hearing that we need a a more we need more civility. Um, it's I think it's very difficult to be civil when you don't trust each other. Oh, that's certainly true. <laughs> I yeah, I definitely agree with that. I'm going to read a quote from your book and give you a chance to elaborate. The state states require regulating markets and political ordering in ways that strengthen the communicative associations constituting civil society. That's quite a mouthful. Um, what can you could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what would be some practical. Yeah, things, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think how the community of associations are are uh, are helped by the state protect and, and regulated in ways that it that, you know ensures they're thriving is first of all just providing basic services which allow them to associate i mean you know to make sure that they can meet without fear of crime to make sure that you know they have the transportation uh, systems together that they can they can gather together just basic uh, things like that but more, more expansively too is to um, you know simply um grant them something like like a non-tax uh, status so that you know they they're, they're really not a corporation they're really not a for-profit it's really to allow them the freedom to associate and I think that that is a freedom that we take too much for granted and it's a precious freedom I mean I, I was struck by Hannah Arendt's observation once so what's the first thing that totalitarian regimes do they try to isolate people so that they're individuals and they distrust each other I think it's really through the work of these associations that we begin to recover that notion of, of mutual trust. And that's what I'm hopeful for, is that increasingly we may, if we can't trust the, uh, the umpire, then maybe you need to take on some initiatives on your own of things that you can do in communities that actually you work together to improve them. Have you read uh, Robert Nisbet's The Quest for Community? Yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things that I found fascinating about that analysis is that the basically not competing, but the overlapping of associations that people often used to have uh, kept us from being so tribal in the ways that we now kind of talk about that as political within politics. Like we're either on the left or we're on the right or we're on, you know, we're we're pro freedom or pro totalitarian. We're status versus anarchists. Um, you know, everybody has to we have to find a box for somebody or we can't even have a conversation. Right. 
Right. And I think I think there's a lot of, of, of um, wisdom in that. I think it's I think I think he's on to something. I think also um, is it Ben Sass, who's a, a senator from Nebraska? Uh, I don't know off top of hand here. Yeah, he wrote a book called Them, um, Why We Hate Each Other. And, um, and I think he's he's also onto some things about that in the past communities. Um, he said he grew up in a community where he never knew the politics of his neighbors. Um, I think today we're, we're we're very keyed in exactly. I mean, very early on, what are the politics of these people and why I want to stay away from them. Well, I guess I should feel happy that I actually do talk politics with my neighbor in in healthy ways, <laughs> so we're not we're not uh, walled off from each other, or we don't. I mean, we don't agree, but uh, we're still friendly. Yeah, no, yeah, I think you are lucky because I think it's that's that kind of civil discourse. I think is becoming more and more rare. Yeah, we've been taught to avoid politics and religion instead of being taught how to how to talk about them maturely and with respect. Yeah, and I think also increasingly we're not sure how to talk to each other because we don't know what the hot button issues are for people. So that when I mean I fly a lot, and one of the things I've noticed on airplanes now is almost everybody has headphones. And I think that's largely to avoid conversation. Well, um yeah, you're right. You know, like the things that trigger people, it's like, you know, you can talk to somebody and you just you just are like, well, wait, am I going to bring up something that I think is completely neutral and they're going to be, you know, not triggered and by it in one way, but like just offended. And then they might not even tell me, but they'll, you know, kind of treat me weirdly for the rest of the flight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, you end the book a little bit with uh, this statement about the purpose of an economy should be to serve, uh, to serve others and to serve to serve us. Um, I, I guess the question I would have is. Uh, where does the should come from? Uh, that's one way to look at what an economy is or what it can do. But where do you find the here's what it should do? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, increasingly for me, the should comes from reading theology uh, and, and political philosophy and, and, and trying to find what I think is a good, reasonable argument. Um, I mean, in terms of those sources, um, uh, the theologian, uh, the two theologians I probably read most on that would give me some inkling of the should would be Augustine and Oliver O'Donovan. That I think both are are making statements about, um, uh, you know, the the should comes from how again how do we order our desires correctly and how do we order those corporately as well as individually. In terms of philosophy, I'm more and more. Um, um, intrigued with Edmund Burke, you know, his notion of, of again, the little platoons of society is really what, what, what makes a society good is, is our ability to take on private initiative and be able to, uh, to cooperate with one another. And that this is what government should serve. It should be these kinds of initiatives. Yeah, I think it's really, um, government's role, I think, is, and, and should ultimately be simply to say, with the minimum of coercion, how can we allow people to pursue their goods. What's on the horizon for you? Are you working on another book project or anything Anything else we should uh, be on the lookout for? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of books right now. One's called, uh, I mean, these titles are always provisional because when the market people get them, then they always change the titles because I come up <laughs> with horrible titles. But um, I'm working on one now called Common Callings and Ordinary Virtues in Praise of the Mundane. And it's really an ethics of everyday life. I was saying that, look, again, where, where human uh, flourishing comes from is in, uh, a lot of the things that we take for granted because they're, they're commonplace. I'm, I'm arguing things like, uh, you know, common relationships like friendship, marriage, parents, 
common activities like shopping, eating, um, uh, you know, other kinds of things are really where where uh, we flourish as human beings. So the, the the last chapter of the book is going to be called "On the Good of Being Boring," um, and it's it's really a reflection upon upon the common ordinariness of life. But that's really where where we find most of our meaning. And then another book called um, uh, "Disembodied Bioethics," and it's uh, it's really a search and saying. How, how did we transform the body and our medical care from an, uh, from an object of care to a problem to be uh, solved? So it's really the quest, I think, for the new transhumanists and posthumanists to become disembodied. Wow, both of those sound really fascinating. Well, I, I will look forward to which one's going to be out first, or are you going to try to aim, aim around the same time? Uh, probably the, uh, the, the first one, Common Callings and Virtues, yeah. Okay, excellent. Well, I will, I will be on the lookout for that. Brent, thanks for being with us today on our podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rake, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.